to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in the space. Hey, Paul, how are you, mate? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Good. It's uh, going to be a shorter week for me. I'm recording. We're recording this on Thursday, the 30th of uh, August, and um, America has Labor Day on Monday, and I've sneakily taken Friday off, heading down to Portland to watch my friend race in the uh, IndyCar at the weekend, so I'm super pumped to finally get to see him race this year. That's great. Uh, everyone loves to have an extra day off, and it's the sadly end of the summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, so it sounds yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, especially after all the fires here too up in Seattle, it's been terrible. So we kind of seem to have had a great summer, and then the last few weeks has been like Armageddon here. Oh my! So well, I hope you have a great weekend. So, but before you go, a little bit of work, right? So yeah, well, I mean, this isn't really work. This is just fun. Well, that's true work too. At all. That's true too. So in the news this week, I found uh, uh, near and dear to my heart is the, the Azure Active Directory Group, and they have released support for their B two B service to support. Google IDs, which a lot of people were just amazed to discover that uh, you couldn't use a, a Gmail account necessarily to create a B2B invite. or And of course, the conspiracy theorists didn't think that there was a, you know, Microsoft wouldn't play well with Google, but that is going away now. And Google IDs are on public preview. So if you are using the B2B service, again, it's not B2C, but the B2B service, and you want to invite folks who are using the G Suite, uh, you can certainly look into that. So that's a certainly a newsworthy item from that perspective yeah absolutely i mean i know we've used that a little bit where you've been inviting me to site collections and groups that you've created in your own office 365 tenant and i've been getting the emails in my personal office 365 so it's interesting to see what kind of all those different scenarios that they're kind of looping around around all those security aspects of different user accounts and stuff so i think this is super useful to have this stuff in a public preview for sure and then in addition to that, which is uh, near and dear to my heart in terms of kind of graph world, but is more an Azure Active Directory thing, the um, MSAL library for .NET, uh, for those watching it, which uh, there's a few, but I would encourage you guys to follow those in the Microsoft Authentication Library for .NET um, repo in the Azure AD organization. Um, there was a new wiki page where they announced on the, um, I guess, the 29th of August, that the MSL.net has gone into a V2.00 preview um, along with an ADL.net 4.00 preview. And there's a blog post that kind of goes into more detail on um, what that means. But um, one of the benefits in going speaking to that team, because I'll be honest, it says preview, and um, I know everyone's been kind of waiting for MSL V1 to go generally available, is with V2, um, essentially now uh, you can share the token cache, 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 wherever you're from, um, between ADL3, ADL4, and the MSAL2 applications, and also between Xamarin iOS and native iOS um token caches, which is a scenario that um, a lot of enterprise apps and software companies um, were kind of 
were wanting. And then also um, you can now decide to use an embedded web browser on Xamarin iOS or Android applications instead of the system browser, which is used by default. Now this for me uh, in building my Ustorian app for the Apple Store, which I'll eventually I'll get around to Android. If you haven't checked it out, go download Ustorian um, and check it out. But um, as part of that, it was using the Safari browser to do the auth jump in um, which is native on iOS, but being able to specify a particular browser um, can sometimes be useful as well from a, uh, embedding it and signing someone in to use something in a browser. And um, the nice benefit of this is that its supported platforms um, were modernized. So um, MSAL2 is dropping support for the Windows Phone 8 and 8.1. Um, and in actual fact, is supporting the .NET Core explicitly. Um, which is a big jump for uh, the Azure AD team as well. Um, so they have a bunch of articles on how to migrate your applications from MSAL1 to 2. Um, they don't currently yet indicate when this will gen be made generally available. Um, and it's something that there's an internal discussion going on right now on when we're going to do that. But just to give a little bit of insight, um, the reason that they don't want to fully make it GA just yet is, is that they're looking for more usage internally as a first party application within Microsoft using the MSAL v2 libraries. Um, and so once they get more technologies like Microsoft Teams migrated over to MSAL v2, they'll be in a more comfortable state to take this out of preview and make it more generally available. Um, I've had it on good authority that this won't take the two to three years that the other one's been stuck in preview. That's as much as I can share with you right now, but that's just kind of the general inkling of there's going to be a much faster velocity to get this to GA and they realize that they've they've had some issues along the way with MSA L1 and ADL and that's kind of current state based on this announcement going out yesterday. And, and from an outside the the corporate walls perspective there, there's there's a lot and I want to focus on the the glass half full piece of this. So number one, there's been a lot of talk about well, how do we converge auth in the world in Microsoft. And so now there's something happening. That's a great thing to look at, right? They they do have a version out. And so something is happening. That version is posted up on GitHub, which means you can open issues or do some type of feedback to the team if there's something that you see is important to you. And then digging further into the SDK itself, uh, the I find it much more natural. There's some things that you, and using ADEL, for example, you really kind of have to know what's happening behind the scenes to understand what methods or objects you want to deal with, whereas in the MSAL library, it's much more natural, much more clear. Confidential client versus public client, which is much better than a generic auth context, for example. So there's a lot to love that's that's there. There's obviously more work to be done, but I think it's a great sign that things are happening. And I'm certain that people from Azure Active Directory will be at Ignite. So if you're at Ignite, find them on the floor and tell them what's important to you so that they can help prioritize that. Certainly great stuff coming out. Yeah, and the convergence thing, just to touch on that, essentially what we're positioning is that um, ADL and MSL will continue to live on, but MSAL will get a lot more features um, over what you'll be able to do with the ADL libraries. Um, with MSAL, the eventual goal is that you won't have to pick 
between V1 and V2, you'll be able to use that library for either of them. Whereas right now, kind of ADL is for V1 apps and MSAL is for V2. Um, and so there's a bunch of guidance there on, you know, what the benefits are of MSAL.net and whether you should be migrating to V2 or not net. Um, I mean, V1 of MSAL is in preview and so is V2. So if you're starting new projects, you know, I'd, I'd go and check that stuff out. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have news in the few coming months on uh, when this thing will actually be genuinely available. Yes, that's great. Don't shoot the messenger. Absolutely. But again, it's the, <laughs> the things are happening, which everyone's saying, can we get some movement? And we've got it. So we'll be good there. But yep. moving on from Azure AD, there's also another item I found. The, the SharePoint team has released an update to the site scripts and site designs, the summer 2018 update. And there's some new capabilities in there. Uh, well, the big thing is probably is when a site is joined to a hub, you can run a site script there. Uh, that uh, The PM running that is Sean Squires, and we're happy to have Sean committed to come on the show in a couple of weeks so he can talk more about what's there and and what the plans they might or may not have coming up. We don't want to give anything away, but uh, he said that there are he's still working on the project, so there's things will be coming there, so it would be great to have uh, that. And the reason of pumping some of these things out now that in advance of our talk, if you're listening to this and you have questions around that and something that we want to try to funnel back to Sean, and we're happy to do that. You can tweet at m365.podcast or m365.podcast.outlook.com. Both of those will land in front of us, and we're happy to take your questions in front of these folks if it's uh, something that you're dying to find out. But uh, interesting stuff there. Yeah, and um, I, I guess on that, please make sure you're giving us ratings in the iTunes or whatever you're using because um, it's super useful for us um, to get an understanding of like whether people are actually listening to us, what you'd like to hear and see, um, and you know, sharing these things on Twitter so that we can grow our audience a bit more, um, especially when we want to get some of the, the bigger rock stars on the show, being able to say what downloads we're getting per episode, kind of tips them over the edge to convince them to commit to the kind of the hour slot to do a recording with us. So I'd appreciate any shout outs you can give us and it'll just mean we'll get bigger and more senior people from Microsoft on the show. Um, now, from a community news perspective, one of the cool things we've got coming is um, Victor Willen is actually going to be on the show in, in a few weeks talking about the Microsoft Teams. Um, but specifically, he has released uh, V2.5.0 um, of the generator that he wrote as a yeoman generator for creating a Microsoft Teams project. Um, I believe he did that on the plane home from the last trip he did because uh, we were chatting about it when he was in Bellevue over a beer. Um, and so we'll have more about this in a show in a few weeks. But um, if you want to get cracking on that right now, the Teams generator has been updated to 2.50 and there's some cool new things that are part of it. The Teams generator is great. certainly gets you started in all things teams if uh, we're running on the node stack there um and victor's always a, a great person to hang out with he had he was in chicago here so we went out to dinner so it was uh definitely i'm excited excited to get him uh, on the show um and also on a, a team's note another community project uh, uh, gary pretty released a blog post now it's about a couple of weeks old now about using uh the bot builder community project and in a similar vein of you know sharepoint has the patterns and practices group providing in uh 
building blocks, if you will, to help you get started. This is a similar project on top of the Microsoft Bot Framework, which Teams uses. And there's a bunch of great information in there, a bunch of middlewares, for example, how to handle authentication, how to do spell checking, you know, simplify some of the sentiment analysis bits and stuff. So there's a lot of great pieces of building blocks, if you will, about Bot Framework that you can use as you're building stuff. And they have a .NET and JavaScript as well as Python uh, extensions that you can snap into your bot builder SDK type projects and uh, certainly great stuff worth checking out. So the ta- this week, our guest is Eric Overfield, who discusses uh, SharePoint practices for SPFX, as well as a bunch of other wide-ranging topics. So I hope that you find this episode interesting. And if you, uh, again, Jeremy and I will both be at Ignite. So if you're at Ignite and find us, uh, I've, I've just got my schedule. I'll be on the expo floor with the team's booth a couple days later in the week. So that'll be good. And as soon as we get a firm schedule on the podcast recording, we'll be certainly to share that out as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, look, have a good uh, rest of the week, everybody. And uh, thanks for listening. So on the show this week is Eric Overfield. Welcome, Eric. Hey, how you guys doing? Doing great. So can you give us a little bit of who is Eric and what do you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Eric Overfield. I'm president co-founder of Pixelmill. Uh, I'm a Microsoft regional director. Uh, I'm also a Microsoft MVP in the office apps and services space. And then in July here of 2018, I was also awarded the MVP in office developer space. So I was pretty proud of that. Um, I spend my day job kind of working through SharePoint implementations for our clients. So I'm a dev by trade. I really like looking at the code. I don't do as much anymore. Uh, I do a lot more advising, a lot more architecture, but it's still a lot of fun. And every day I'm still in code trying to trying to figure out the coolest and latest good stuff. That's excellent. I'm glad to see there's yet another Office Developer MVP. I think there's maybe a dozen or two, yeah. uh, which Not is kind of nice. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so we've started asking this question, Eric, on um, how did you get into tech, like way back when? Um, what, what got you into computers? How did you get down to this path of going down this route after leaving school? Or maybe oh, yeah, it was way before. Uh, it was my mom back in about 1980. Uh, she brought home a one of those compact uh, 8086s, I think. And she got me in a, a basic school like way back then. So I've just always been in tech. And then uh, back in the early 90s, I got into the whole BBS world. I uh, wanted to like develop my own BBS. And so I was always coding in, in basic, then went into Pascal, then went into school. And by the time I was in college in the mid 90s, uh, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be doing web design. That seemed like really cool stuff. And it's, it's really it's progressed from there. And so I moved on from HTML into JavaScript, into CSS. And then, well, now I wanted to build a full application. So, of course, I needed to, to learn C Sharp or C++ at the time. And then I moved into C Sharp uh, and then found SharePoint after seeing it in the early 2000s when we all know it wasn't the most um, customizable application. Really, it was the 2007. I'm like, oh, OK, cool. I can finally build an enterprise solution here. And at the time, it was actually about uh, public facing sites. Um, but of course, as SharePoint evolved, I had to evolve with it. And it, it's been a fun journey. That's awesome stuff. So we uh, want to talk today about uh, your topic from a recent conferences, the SharePoint Framework Best Practices. So we can assume that most of listeners understand what the SharePoint Framework is, but where do you see as uh, the best practices? Where do you start on that path to 
to get people on board there. Yeah, SharePoint best practices. It it it's not that it's changing every day. It's like there's new things being developed every day. So it's kind of a fun session to give because you could do a, a full day workshop. You could do probably a full week workshop on all of the really cool things you can do with SharePoint Framework, and then and then the best way to do it. Uh, there's a lot of things that I could definitely talk about. Some of the things that I really wanted to look at um, with SharePoint Framework best practices is is moving from the on-prem world to the to the cloud world because a lot of us built uh, full trust solutions on classic SharePoint, and we would want to move and migrate a lot of those solutions on into on into SharePoint and on SharePoint Online. And you can do that now pretty well using Azure and using um, AD applications and using some of the new uh, classes that have been added into the SharePoint framework. And so it's kind of one of the, the big things I want to talk about or I, I like talking about is that there's now a lot of great documentation on docs.microsoft.com slash SharePoint on helping you understand how to properly build an Azure function or to build an Azure web app even if you wanted. And it basically is going to build your own API that you can now communicate with safely and securely using SharePoint Framework. And in the demo I always give, it's kind of funny that the Azure function is it basically it's a C-sharp little class that all it does is it returns a static uh, list in JSON. I mean like super, super, super simple. But it's like, I, I'm hoping that my, anyone who sees that, they get that that little nugget that, wait a second, so now that I've got the hook, I can now do anything I want because once I'm in Azure, I now have 110%, I have 100% c- control of what, what I now do. So once you've got that Azure function set, once you've had it, Secured uh, using Azure Active Directory, which Azure Active Directory is already included in your um, in your Office 365 tenant anyhow. So you've already got access to it. Uh, the Azure function you can have is a pretty inexpensive component. Um, the SharePoint framework includes uh, an AAD uh, HTTP class. It includes uh, some functionality already built in to allow you to now safely and securely access that Azure function without having to log in again. It's it's full single sign on. That's stellar. That's cool. That that's definitely gives us a lot less excuse why, oh, I can't move to the cloud. No, you can. You could almost do probably a lift and shift of, of a lot of what you've already done and move your full trust solution, like move what you built, rip out the code, wrap it into some Azure functions, refactor it in a better way. Anyhow, I'm sure you can you'd love to rebuild your code because, you know, we all learn. Wow, our code that we built three years ago is a little old. <laughs> uh, and now you can you can safely and securely access that using um, the SharePoint framework. And, and is this something you're seeing as um, a demand from your customers? Like, I mean, the SPFX framework's been around for a while now, but as you say, like the older models of SharePoint is something that has been around for a long, long time now. I mean, I started my career mm-hmm. on SharePoint Dem in 2003, I guess. Mm-hmm. So are you seeing customers mm-hmm. kind of asking for this as a request in the customers you work with? Uh, yes, yes. So uh, the reason why I hesitate is the current solutions we've been building on top of Azure have typically been around provisioning. Uh, that was one of the first big asks that people had was, I just want to provision quickly and easily with um, some sort of consistency. So we were using PNP PowerShell uh, built on top of or built within um uh, an Azure function to to do that. So uh, there's a really good, this is a little way from like, to me, SharePoint framework best practices, which is totally cool. It, there's just that whole, there's a provisioning best practices on how to um, consistently provision on top of SharePoint Online. And we were using Azure functions for that. We were sometimes building connectors where we were triggering the process using a web part rather than using something like Flow, and that worked really well. It's in the conversations I'm having now with clients, that's where this is becoming more um, interesting because these classes <coughs> these classes have only just been added um, 
we're up to at the time of this recording, we're at SharePoint Framework 1.5.1 and the graph client, which we haven't really talked about yet, is still only in um, public preview. It's not actually out GA. The AAD client is. That's supposed to get fixed in SharePoint 1. Framework 1.6.0, which they say is going to come out hopefully in the September, October timeframe is what is what's been publicly said. And I'm hoping for that. And um, I think that once all of that goes more GA, we will see. Um, I, I think we'll see more adoption and I'm prepping for it. So that's why I'm having those conversations with clients. Now we did do some, um, some graph work with a client in the last year that, uh, was pretty fun where we were accessing a lot of components of graph in SharePoint framework and in uh, SharePoint online. And that at the time was a little more challenging because getting that, that authorization token was a challenge. It was not easy. You had to, you had to go get it yourself basically. And what we ended up doing, cause the client didn't like the redirects is we ended up building a Azure function based proxy, which uh, we were able to then use application permissions to get what we needed. And so we basically allowed the Azure function to to maintain the state for us and to maintain that authorization. And we would we would have all of the users just talk to that Azure function uh, saying who it was using that security. That worked fine. The Azure function could then verify that and then go, okay, cool. I'll we're safe. I'm good. I'll go get that graph call for you. And it saved us from all that redirect. Uh, I would love to be able to refactor that whole project now based on the um, what we should get out of 1.6.0. So, yes, I'm definitely seeing it. I think we should see more of it. Uh, and I think that as we see more migrations to the cloud um, and there's more acceptance that the cloud is safe and secure, uh, I, I, I expect there to be more need for that. Well, it's interesting how the, the, the these two topics you've touched on can actually help, right? So, so moving stuff to Azure Functions, or even if it's even if it's a web API, mm-hmm. uh, can can certainly be helpful. And then when you talk with the security, there's something to be said that may, maybe I don't want SPFX to have access to everything in the graph, like yeah, yeah. For, for you know groups read write just so that I can update a planner, for example. So, uh, do you do what are your thoughts about? Maybe just keeping that permissioned code back in your your serverless or your web API instead of in the graph. Is that you know, viable in your approach? I, I do think it is. And you know something, Paul? I have a feeling that when we built this solution, it was based on a conversation you and I had at a SharePoint Saturday <laughs> Sacramento. I think I discussed this with you and you talked about building a proxy. And we said, you know, that actually is a good idea. Uh, yeah, I, I think long term. Well, maybe not long term, but it's certainly at this transition point. I think there's certainly some value there. But um, it's nice to see it's in the real world for sure, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and it works, and it, it. I think, and I felt very confident that the solution was valid, and and we did the client right. I mean, that's always one of my big key goals, and is to make sure that I'm I'm proud of it, and that like quote, if I was on the other end of the line, I would be happy with what was produced. I think it was a good, valid thing, and I think proxies make a lot of sense. Uh, I know Jeremy over years of talking to you, security has always been a big concern of yours, or that's my opinion on on when I've talked to you. And I think that some of the proxies can help sometimes mitigate some of that because you can really lock down your code. Now, if your code gets hacked, that's one thing. But if I opened up my whole system in a sense, uh, but only my app could touch it, you could talk to my app, but I, I had my own security model within my own app. I, I understand I'm duplicating a lot of people's work, but I feel better doing that than just saying, okay, well, yeah, group rewrite all and everyone gets access to that. That just sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, I think part of the locking it down is also this notion of like when customers are deploying products, whether I'm an ISV or whether I'm a consulting company going mm-hmm. into building something, um, when IT admins get involved, 
you know, they're looking at those permission levels and, you know, for the mm-hmm. right reasons are going, well, hang on a minute, why are you asking for these permission levels? And um, I was in a, an executive briefing yesterday with a large organization. Um, I couldn't believe how big they were actually, um, where they were saying that they only allow um, all Azure applications to be admin consented. Uh, they don't allow any users to use a consent whatsoever. And so their okay. admins are, you know, with a fine tooth comb looking at every single app that gets built by an enterprise developer, whether internally or externally and checking those permissions to make sure. And And I think, you know, as developers for a long, long time, you know, we've had uh, domain admin to our own developer environments. And then at the last minute, we mm-hmm. ship a product and realize, oh, wait, we can't ask for that when we go to staging and production. And so, you know, I think there's a, definitely a best practice mindset of starting with the permissions you're going to ask in staging and production in dev to catch those errors a lot earlier is, is definitely something that um, I've always been kind of guiding people towards as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on the topic of best practices, I have a, this question is probably out of the blue and I apologize for springing it on you, but I, I came across a blurb somewhere on the internet, so it must be true, that <laughs> in today's day and age with fast networks and faster networks and stuff, it, does it make sense to do bundling of, of all my assets or do I just want to keep uh, files separately and let them get cached on the client? And I know that you, in your best practices talk, you touch a bit on bundling. So what are your thoughts there and when, what do you see people doing uh, as, as you go out? Yeah, so the real expert this uh, and the um, that this blog post has written this is Waldeck Masterkaz, and we'll have to get his blog in the no- show notes for this. Um, and he's talked a lot more about this than I, than I, I care to try to remember because it's really <laughs> complex. So uh, the, my quick way of looking at it is the traditional idea was you bundle basically everything into one JavaScript file. But with uh, HTTP2, I believe, it, it's become actually more efficient to not actually bundle everything into one thing. So my what I consider best practices in particular with SharePoint framework uh, is you you don't bundle as many external libraries as possible. So you purposely try to grab things from external libraries. A quick example, jQuery. A lot of people still use it. So you create a SharePoint framework web part. You now want to include it as a dependency. So you put it, you save it as a dependency, not a dev dependency, but a real dependency. You then import it into your code. So you're now using jQuery into your code. At that point, Webpack's going to realize what you're doing, and they're going to bundle jQuery into your bundle. So when you go ahead and create the JavaScript file that's going to go thrown onto your um, onto your, your your SharePoint site, that JavaScript file is going to include jQuery. Okay, so maybe not too bad, but the thing is, is let's say you use that web part five times on the page, your your system is going to go ask for that jQuery bundle five times. And basically, you're going to start sucking up more and more memory and, and bandwidth because you're going to constantly be trying to get that or load that or process that extra bits. It, it Even though our our Internet's quote fast, and the uh, our, our caching is quote good. That still is excessive. That's not needed. And so within SharePoint Framework, there's a way within a config.json file to say, hey, go grab these external libraries from these external sources, and then they don't get bundled. So. My opinion is you really don't want to bundle in SharePoint Framework based on all of the, um, uh, based on how the whole system was built. How does now. that handle if you what one SPFX web part using one version of jQuery and one using another? Like technically, that means there's going to be a bunch of jQuery versions running on that browser when it unpacks everything, unless you go down that path of being careful about which ones you use in each web part. But I guess you can't control that if an ISV targets one, right? 
so the SharePoint framework, when it looks at those libraries, it it wraps it so that it gets basically namespace. At least that's my understanding. So it's not when you load in jQuery, the framework is really going to make sure, at least is my understanding, that the like dollar sign is more wrapped in something so that it it's under its own um, in JavaScript terms. I'm pretty sure this would be its own function. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's, it's function scope. That that's these. Uh, my understanding, I haven't tried it other than I know that I have put multiple web parts that were using the same library of different versions and it worked fine. That's not true with Angular. And that was be I'm not the Angular guy at all. Uh, the, the Angular really does go all the way to the window and it just takes over everything. And my understanding is Angular has still not figured out really well how to work with SharePoint framework. But the external libraries in general get wrapped within a function scope in, in JavaScript terms, get wrapped within a function scope. So there's less collision going on. At least that's my understanding. It, and that that conflict resolution or that duplication of, mm-hmm. of libraries is independent of the bundling process, right? If, whether you load it from a bundle or load it from a CDN, it, you're still loading it, I think. So even in that scenario, I don't think bundling mm. matters from that point, right? If I, if I have the same web part multiple times, that's one thing, but using the external library, different versions is still going to be an issue regardless of bundling. I would think so. You know, I haven't right? actually yeah. tried that, but yeah, yeah, it makes total sense to me. I can't, I, I couldn't tell you how they actually pull that off. Because yeah, the thing is, is that when your external library is needed, it's going to be pulled in, in the context of the web part that needs it. Exactly. So you could, the web part could pull that in. And I mean, I know that there are people that, that know the answer to this. Uh, I'd be looking to Waldeck and I'm sure he would just go, oh, yeah, of course, this is exactly what happens. Yeah. No, I, I think um, you're on the right track there. Yeah. I think the moral yeah. of the story might be uh, before you are deploying these packages to your SharePoint installation, you might want to review what's going on and see if perhaps I can optimize it by uh, all the other assets that I have in my tenant, right? X, X, absolutely. And I would actually argue, you really shouldn't be using jQuery. A best practice, which I don't really talk about because jQuery is so popular, is don't be using jQuery. Uh, it's not really, it's, it's considered a pretty old library and there's a lot of better ways to do a lot of that stuff. Um, you can't do everything at all with the like Office UI fabric, but you can do a lot of it. If you're doing DOM manipulation, you, you really don't need to use jQuery anymore. Um, all modern browsers all support traditional, uh, DOM element manipulation. So, uh, that, that would be just a general best practice, <laughs> but I get it. A lot of people still use it. We've been using it for so many years. So one last thing on the bundling, though, if I yeah. want to if I want to change the way the SPFX tool chain does its bundling, is that a lot of work or is it simple enough for me to control to the level that we've discussed here? Oh, so what we've discussed is simple. There's just a config.json file found in the config folder where you're able to say, hey, I would like these external libraries, these libraries to be external. And here's where to go get them from. Here's the CDN where you can go get them. Beyond that, I have found personally that changing the bundle is pretty challenging. Uh, you can control the gulp file.json.js file. So you can change the way that gulp is doing some stuff. But uh, it's not really supported. It's not really recommended for Microsoft that I can see. So in general, at this point, we're stuck more with how uh, Microsoft wants to build their uh, bundle and build for us. That's my experience. And then um, you mentioned the graph earlier on, um, and I've seen mm-hmm. from the presentations you've done around kind of debugging your <laughs> excuse me debugging your REST mm-hmm. calls. What kind of approaches do you take to, you know, getting the MS Graph client 
um, which is part of the SPFX packaging, I guess, through the, I think it's like an SP-client-preview thing. Um, yes. How, how do you debug that? Like what tools are you using um, to kind of see what's going on in that pipe that's making those calls back down to the graph? And, you know. Uh, I do, a, I, I typically do my, my traditional, my, my initial development. I start with the, um, I just blanked on it, uh, the, the Graph Explorer. Yeah. Uh, I start there just to start to get some of the calls because what I like about it is, is they do help me create the URL. They help me start to create that string so I know what it is that I'm doing. The second thing I'm going to go to is Visual Studio, uh, Visual Studio Code. There's a great plugin. It is in my best practices. Uh, it's called REST Client. So if you're using Visual Studio Code, if you're not, I don't know why you're not, but if you, hopefully you are, you go into the extensions and you just look for REST client, R-E-S-T client. You look for the one that has over a million downloads. There's only one of them. And what that allows you to do so easily is build REST calls very much like Postman, but uh, Postman is basically being deprecated. It's not going to be around too much longer. Not, not, no, there's not a long-term support for it this, as far as I'm aware of. But the REST client in Visual Studio Code uh, is really cool. And you can start building REST calls. The only catch is that you do need to create the, author, uh, the authentication cookie. So you basically need to get connected to the graph using a browser or something. And you you look at the, um, the cookies. You just pull that into the REST client. And then you can start making calls into... Uh, into graph, which I think is is kind of like the next step because now I'm building the URL myself and I'm able to see the JSON a little more cleanly and I can manipulate it. That's my experience. At that point, now I move it into uh, I'm moving it into SPFX. It, and SPFX is is interesting. So there's two real ways you can interact with AAD and graph, and and the graph is basically a wrapper uh, on uh, on top of the AAD client already available in general availability in SharePoint Framework. So the AAD client allows you to connect to the AAD HTTP client class found in SharePoint Framework allows you to connect to any AAD app. So anything you want and you just tell the permissions you need and you give it the URL of the endpoint and you're good to go. With the graph client still in preview, we talked about hopefully going to go GA in SharePoint, 1 .6. SharePoint Framework 1.6.0, hopefully in the September, October timeframe is what we've been publicly been told. Uh, that one, you get more of a, a fluent, um, a fluent coding design where you aren't having to build the rest request yourself. You're basically saying you get to the, the context graph client, you get what you want, you select what you want, you filter what you want, but you don't have to build the uh, URL, which is pretty cool. So when you get the response back, either way, you use the ADD client, you use the graph client, you get the response back. I I'm just an old school developer who just doesn't always like the, the debugging tools and browsers. And I'll console log out, just console.log out the response, the, the variable that's returned. And I get to see the, uh, it, at least if I'm using the, um, uh, the Chrome developer tools, I can now work with the, the JSON response um, in the console log. And I, it works for me. It's it's dirty. It's simple, but it just works. So those are kind of like the three steps I go through uh, when I'm debugging. Uh, there's going to be a lot more, of course, if you now need to start trying to work with the, the graph. You want to start posting into graph or changing things. You get a little more tricky, but you could still use the REST client to help you um, figure out the, the proper URL that you want to use, the proper endpoint, uh, and the proper uh, data that you need to send along, you can then move that over into SPFX with, with pretty much ease. 
You know, it's the first I heard some concerns about Postman. I've come to rely on that quite a bit, especially the token acquisition part. So that's a, uh, I'm not a, uh, a a Postman. I don't have used it in so many years. That that was what I was told, and I, I would definitely look into that. One of the things I do like about the um, Another thing I like, though, even if Postman's still around, what I like about uh, Visual Studio Code extension is it's all Visual Studio Code, which I like. So it's kind of in that one spot where I'm already devving. And I, when I save the .rest file or .http file, so I save my my demo file, my test my testing file. When I when I commit that into Git, it's really easy for all of my fellow devs to be able to basically play with the same debugging endpoints, and it's all within the code base, and it's all in the code, whereas Postman is a separate app that's outside of that. And so it's one of the things that I like. Uh, Definitely fact check me on Postman. I was told that by people I trusted, um, but it didn't matter to me. I'd already moved to the REST client and I was happy about it, so. Yeah, I like your idea though of getting those sample requests in in with my code so that I can understand what's happening. It's sometimes that's uh, pictures worth a thousand words, so to speak, right? So that certainly is, is great stuff as well. Yeah. And we document that REST file so that we all know who what it is. We all know what we're trying to do in it. So it's really easy. And we just we basically create currently we're creating one per project. So it's always there. We know where it is. All the devs know where to look. You just know what it is. And you comment out, hey, here's what I'm trying to do with this call. Here's what why we did it. Here's where this this kind of call is being used. Uh, and it works really well. We use it for the REST API more than graph uh, because right now we're doing a lot more uh, SharePoint REST stuff. But it it. It works, and it, it just seems to, to work really well. Yeah, and, and tying in a little bit to a talk we had a, a week or two ago with uh, Wes Hackett, where having a, a picture of the response, as you will, from when you wrote your code, comparing mm. it today, because as we know, the graph is is continually changing, and while it may Too not true. seem like a broken change, may, maybe there's something that looks a little bit different. So that's all. Those are great tips. Thanks. Cool. Those are best. Those aren't in your best practices, but you should add that little snippet there. That was pretty. Yeah. That's pretty good stuff. Hey, hey, talking about Wes Hackett, I mean, I know he likes to bash on the uh, intro in a box guys, but um, I know you're a big advocate of the SP starter kit, which, you know, in my opinion is kind of like an intro in a box, um, kind of very vanilla Mm -hmm. baseline that customers can use to get started. What makes you... I mean, you've really jazzed about this. What makes you so excited about the starter kit? Well, it's open source, so you can do whatever you want. I mean, I'm a dev guy. So for me, it, it makes sense that I get all those really great tools that is created by somebody that I can now freely use and expand upon. And so I've I've done all I can to participate in that particular community. So the SP starter kit, it's github.com slash SharePoint. I know we'll have in the show notes. Uh, github.com slash SharePoint slash SP hyphen starter hyphen kit um, created by some really talented talented people in the PNP core team. Uh, I've been heavily involved mainly in the documentation on the issue side. So the canned intranets, um, a lot of, there's so many of them that is, I've never seen a, such a saturated market before, uh, which I guess could be good for the consumer and you get a lot of choices, but it can be tough because which is the right one. Um, one of the things with all of them though, is they're all closed source that I'm aware of. So you, you purchase that software, you are stuck with them for the lifetime of the, the, um, the contract and then you really have to use their system to build anything well one of the cool things that we've seen with modern sharepoint is the the editing experience and the provision experience is pretty customizable and pretty sophisticated so there'd be like the big question is do you really need the canned solutions if you can have basically all the tools available to you so the starter kit provides you a very vanilla very basic canned internet and even then 
it's not ready for production. I, I that's it's so, I, I see that's all the time on the issues list. I want to go into production and this doesn't work. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, you're misunderstanding the point. You should not take this code straight up and put it into production. You should understand what's in it and you should customize it and take out what you don't need and, and add what you do want. And it will make you, I think, a really great uh, simplistic uh, portal canned internet provisioning experience. Uh, so I really like the fact that it's open source. I love the fact that it does solve a lot of my clients' needs at the base. Um, it, it's uh, They've got all the code. They can see great examples of how to use web parts and extensions together. Uh, it includes a really great footer that's been very popular that includes that includes editable links. I mean, these are like the, those things that people have been asking for all over the place, and they've been spending a lot of money to get it. And now it's free. Pardon? Yeah, and we're getting a lot closer to it. And then uh, what we heard publicly a couple weeks ago, this would have been in, I think, middle of August 2018, early August, we heard from the PMP core team that they're looking to extend the SharePoint, uh, the SP Starter Kit to basically have a web service that you can go to, you can log, you know, give it your tenant access information so that this thing can now talk to your tenant and it will deploy the starter kit for you without like, you know, kind of like a single click install. Now that... Hopefully for Jeremy, like this is like totally like, no, 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 you can't do that. I'm not going to give you access to my tenant. <laughs> of course not. So a lot of us are going to say no. That whole provisioning process they're creating is going to be open sourced. So if you don't want to trust the PNP core team on how they did it, download the code, put it into your own tenant. And now you've got that whole provisioning experience to be able to provision uh, the the starter kit automatic, you know, through an Azure web servers or something, and I'm sure that will be an, a complicated install or won't be the most easy install to install that web service, the initial one. But it's all open source. It's all cool. If you want to see how to build a sophisticated web app service that talks to SharePoint and your tenant, you're going to have that code. I mean, where was this three years ago? No, no we 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 are all hacking away at SharePoint. We we're all buying books on how to how to do whatever with SharePoint, and there was no central community. Well, now there is, and that that to me is very exciting, and it's a very open community, which I, I really like. It's very friendly. Yeah, then I'm glad you point that out because even though it's the SharePoint patterns and practices, when you start looking at what they're doing, like for example, a web service that is can talk to a secure service or that is secured mm -hmm. by itself, th that's kind of universal concept, right? That's not necessarily yeah. a SharePoint thing. That's this cloud world we're in. So yep. that is, uh, I'm glad you highlighted that because I think a lot of people will find value in that even for their own legacy type code that they might be working on. Yeah, if you get stuck, if you're starting a project, I mean, the first thing you should be doing is going to github.com slash SharePoint um, and looking at the different PNP uh, areas. So they've got uh, four different repos that I think are interesting. I'll have to get you the links in the show notes. Uh, there's demo web parts, demo extensions. There's demo solutions, which is like a collection of web parts and, and, uh, and extensions. And then finally, there's the starter kit. Look through that, look at the examples and see, has anyone started to do what I need to do? Perfect. There's your yeah. base code. Yeah. You just and saved the, yourself a week, a month, and now build off of that. And reusable components, which maybe they're not exactly what you want, but it's certainly yeah. a good base to get started on. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Well, so we're, we're coming up on time. Is there anything else that you want to get out to, to folks let them know about? This has been a great, great set of topics. I don't know if we missed anything that you think is important enough to cover. Uh, the other one would be uh, there's some I, I think some of the real uh, best practicey people. So some, there's a couple of blogs that I follow pretty religiously um, that I find is is producing best practices 
ideas and concepts on a daily, weekly basis. Uh, I'll put the, I'll, I'll provide the link so we can add them to the show notes, but those would be people that interesting enough, they're all European. Uh, Waldeck Masticaz, I've already mentioned him, uh, Michael Svensson and then Elias Struve. I know I just left out about 35 people that are really, really impressive and good. Um, but those are three of the blogs that I've been following specifically around SharePoint framework best practices. Uh, they've just been producing some amazing content to share. Um, and I, I highly recommend you follow them at least so that you you kind of if you want to stay on top of SharePoint framework development, at least. And we should include a link to the calls, which uh, I don't remember the schedule. Do you know the schedule when they, they do their calls that people could listen in or actually participate? Uh, I know there's an aka.ms slash PNP something call. <laughs> we'll, we'll get that link for <laughs> you as well. For uh, they had a weekly call. So. On the, the recording today is a Thursday. They had a 7 a.m. Pacific time call today. Basically, every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific, because uh, it's mainly run by a European group. Uh, and then there's a couple others as well. Almost every week, I believe, now there's a PMP call related to something that's open to anybody to join. Impressive stuff. And Vesa constantly, Vesa, you've been in, so he works at Microsoft. He's constantly giving away information that I, I, I sometimes question. But hey, if he said it, I'll tweet it. <laughs> It's out in the public by then. It's too late. You got it. Exactly. <laughs> well, look, um, we really appreciate you being on, mate. The um, uh, Do you still blog quite regularly? It seems that people are changing the ways they're sharing the information, whether it's jumping on podcasts to share it versus kind of blogging things. But how, how are you actively sharing yourself? Where, where's the best place to go find information that you share? Yeah. I still have a blog, ericoverfield.com. I think it's been at least a month since I posted on it. Um, I've unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look, I've been having to write a lot more uh, around the business use cases of digital workspace and whatnot. And that I've been blogging more at uh, my company blog at blog.pixamil.com. Uh, other than that, like I'm constantly doing, I, I'm doing more recordings. Uh, I definitely am doing more podcasts. I think this is a fun way to consume information and then sessions. I've just, and now that we're coming into the fall 2018, um, uh, session time or uh, conference season, uh, I've been, I have, a, I've been doing a lot of travel and I have a lot of travel. So it's kind of one of the other big ways that I've been sharing is basically just getting out there, pounding the pavement and talking to whoever is looking to interested in listening and talking to and listening to me. And so will we see you at Ignite? I will be at Ignite. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, looking forward to it. It should be a lot of fun. Right, great. Well, so Jeremy and I will both be there. So it'll be great to catch up there. And if our listeners have questions, maybe they could find you uh, on the absolutely. expo floor there. And so, again, thanks a lot for your time today. Yeah. It's been great stuff. And uh, look forward to seeing you yeah, at we'll Ignite. Have a, we'll have a all right. With you're Mickey welcome. Thank you all. Something. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you all. Bye. Cool. So if we can stop that one each. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks.